Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And welcome back to the show. Hey. <laughs> How are you going? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm running out of time. That, oh, sound, that sounded ominous. That didn't sounds it? like I'm you're going to die. Out of time. No. You're going to die. No, no you're shush, not. Shush, don't say that. No, you're not. No one jinx me like that, please. No, I am running out of time in terms of the fact that I'm off. Overseas soon. You're going to China and Japan? Correct. In the other order though, Japan and China, Uh if you want to be technical about it. Sorry, Um, my apologies. Yeah, you should be sorry. Yes, off to Japan and China very soon, couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, So much to do between now and then. I don't have a clue how I'm going to do it all. (laughs) But it also means that we might be down an episode in my absence. That's bad news. It's bad news. But, you know, we'll we'll keep bringing you the episodes. It won't be too much of a break. Yeah, maybe I can... Try something experimental in your absence. What the hell does that even mean? Uh, I don't know. The <laughs> possibilities are endless. Do I do I want to let you do that? I do have holidays. Well, they're not really holidays, but I have two extra days off for two weeks. Okay. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm slightly scared about what this might mean. <laughs> but hey, give it a go. See what happens. Now that I've put it out there, I probably won't do it, but you never know. So that's what's coming up in the near future mm. for, for Deviant Women. But what's coming up in the immediate right now future for well, Deviant Women? Well, in the right now, I think that we should say happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride, everybody. It's where are we now in the month? We're coming to the, the end of the month, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, June 24. Oh, oh that's the date that we're recording. Where? No. This will be coming out on June 27 or 8. Well... That is a very, very portentous date. It is. It is a portentous date. And it actually. Portentous is maybe not the word precipitous? that we want. Precipitous? Um, I don't know. Significant. Significant. Yes. Yes. It is a very significant date. I'm sure you are all woke enough to know that it is <laughs> the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. It is. I think last time we were having this conversation, I was like, it's the 100th. And I was like, no, wait. <laughs> Not the hundred. Wait. We would be a lot further along <laughs> in the world. Look, there has been far more progress than I think anyone 50 years ago expected there to be, mm-hmm. but not 100 years worth of no. progress. We're not <laughs> no. quite there. It's a little ambitious. Yeah. 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 So how are we going to be celebrating this Pride? Where are you going to be? Well, I, I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious where you're going to be Well, we're going us. to be in New York mm-hmm. on Christopher Street outside the Stonewall Inn. For for a little bit of our story, actually. Most of our story is going to take place before and after this event. Mm -hmm. But in today's episode, I really wanted to honour the life of one of Stonewall's most important activists, the fabulous, fabulous Marsha P. Johnson. And I'll also be telling a lot of Sylvia Rivera's story as well, because she is 
also very closely tied yeah. with Martha Pease Johnson. Yeah, because, I mean, you sort of came around to Marsha through some of those other figures in That's the right. end, That's right, yeah. You? I was originally looking at Stormé Delavery. Yes, she's is, part of this story. She's though, also too. going to appear yeah. in the story. I was doing research into her and, look, that's not to say that Marsha She won't has, come up again exactly. some other time. Yeah. We will dive into the life of Stormé at some point. But... When I read Marsha's story, I was just like, oh, no, wait, this is the one. This is the one, particularly Mm. on this anniversary, I think, this 50th anniversary, considering, as we kind of briefly mentioned before, the progress that has been made in, I will say, the Western world. Obviously, Stonewall happened in the US and kickstarted the pride movement in the US, which then spread through North America, Europe, Australia. And so we are talking really Mm. about pride in a Western context here because I think we can all acknowledge that there is a lot of discrimination and quite awful discrimination Mm. that occurs still in many parts of the world. However, Marsha and Sylvia, they are trans activists of colour, the women of colour and these are figures who are not only have been kind of historically overlooked in the importance of Stonewall and the activism that grew out mm-hmm. of Stonewall as being minorities within a minority, but as minorities within a minority, trans women of colour remain still the most persecuted, mm-hmm. marginalised um, yeah. marginalized mm-hmm. group within the LGBTQI movement. And I think it's really important to tell these stories because so many of the strides that have been made for gay men and for lesbians don't necessarily translate into their trans brothers mm. and sisters. Because I think that's a really interesting part of that conversation because as as you mentioned, again, we've been in the US quite a lot mm. recently. We have. <laughs> we have we, don't worry. With people. activists yeah. a lot in the yeah. US. Don't worry, everyone. We'll, we'll get to the rest yeah. of the world. We'll, we'll move out of the US again soon. But, of course, in terms of gay and lesbian rights, I mean... There were already organisations working towards gay and lesbian rights long before Stonewall occurred, like even back in the late 19th century. Absolutely. There were still already organisations working towards that. But I think, as you said, the real difference here is that presence of trans folk. That's where Stonewall really sets itself Mm. apart in that Western context. And it also sets itself apart for being quite actively progressive and revolutionary because we use the term Stonewall riots for the movement Mm. but really revolution is probably a better term because it was a complete change in the way that I guess from a political context Mm. the way that people engaged with LGBTQI rights and the development of those rights. I mean, for context, right? Oh, yes. For those who have no idea what we're talking about as such. I mean, because it's easy to, especially people of our generation, to not realise how different things were 50 years ago. And again, this story is concentrated on the US, but many of these facts are applicable across the Western world. So in the US in the late 60s, homosexuality was illegal in every state but Illinois. Laws did not protect the rights of LGBTQI people who were vulnerable to losing their jobs, losing their housing or their families should they either come out or be outed. Mm. So post-World War II, gay men and lesbians were forced out of the military where they had been allowed before because they needed numbers, I suppose, and then also out of civil agencies. So when Eisenhower became president, he signed Executive Order 10450, 
I love that. Just do they, so many numbers. Do you reckon they come up with these numbers on the spot? Or do you reckon or there, there has actually... been 10,450 executive That's orders? what I'm wondering. Like oh. is this actually chronological or are people just making up numbers as they go? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it has to be chronological, right? <laughs> That's a lot of executive orders. It's a lot of executive if orders, you've got hey? that many executive orders, don't I would win. I would argue that you don't have a democratic <laughs> society <laughs> that maybe you actually have a low-key like – Dictator. I would say so. If they're getting away with 10,000 executive orders. That's a fucking lot. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. We're not from the US. We apologise yeah. for our ignorance. <laughs> so this executive order added sexual perversion as grounds for dismissal from government departments. Police and military records were shared with private employers. So many people lost their jobs. It's so fucked. Mm. Like it's like a purposeful weeding out. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you are – undesirable and we want you gone. In the 1950s, homosexuality was linked with all kinds of moral deviance because, of course... (laughs) I love the the way you said that so excitedly. (laughs) You're like, all kinds of moral deviance. When you think about the 50s, I think this is like... 50s are just like so clean cut, aren't they? And because what does that even fucking mean, sexual perversion? Well, I think it's so broad that, yeah, you can totally put a whole bunch of different things under that category. That could be a fucking foot fetish for all you fucking know. Like I could fire you for having a foot fetish. Like come on, people. Yeah, it's probably designed to discriminate against anybody who is not in like a nuclear family with Mm -hmm. missionary. Yeah. Yeah. Sex. Yeah. That's and, all that's allowed. Yeah. And just have se- have that missionary sex, have a sheet between you yeah. with a hole cut in it. Yes. That's it. Ideally. Ideally. Because that's how I have sex. <laughs> that's how you have? Is that how you have sex? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk about this later. Oh. I might do, I've, got some, I've got some books. Am I doing it wrong? Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Okay. All right. Cool. Anyway. Because the other thing about the 50s, what do you think about when you think about the 50s? Uh, Come on. Beatniks? Politi- no. Oh. Politically. <laughs> Conservative politics. What do you want the answer to be? Think about McCarthyism. That is the correct answer. Yeah, McCarthyism. That's what I thought you were yeah. going to say, but I just wasn't sure. Just didn't want to get it wrong. Yeah, dreaded, dreaded communism. Mm. Oh, yeah. Communism bad. Oh, yeah. Gay people are such communists. Exactly. Yes. Well, that was the logic. That's such it's the like, logic. oh, gay people must be communists. Clearly. Yeah. Because we don't like either of them. Mm. So basically... Yeah, it was a terrible, terrible time. Queer people faced prison sentences for consensual sex up to 20 years and they could be detained in asylums. 20 years. Or life in some states. Holy fuck. Life in prison for consensual sex. life. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, move on quick. Yeah, I told you. I told you it gets dark. I'm getting bogged down already. It's going to get darker Mm -hmm. just for a moment. Yeah. Don't worry, we'll bring some lightness back in. Okay, I'll but it's need gonna that. Get darker. I'm going to need that. This is going to be another episode where we both cry. Oh, fuck. It's going to be I'm the just getting sick of these episodes. Hat trick, three episodes in a row where we make ourselves cry. <laughs> no more crying we got to do someone really light and fun Oh, yeah, next we time. will. Definitely. Next one's just going to be something ridiculous. Yeah. 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 Okay. They could also be detained in asylums and in seven states they could be castrated. In California's Atasadero State Hospital, they could be lobotomized. Lobotomized. Given shock therapy and castrated. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is all poor. No, let's not pause. No. No, let's pause. Oh, fuck. <laughs> That's outrageous. That is outrageous. And this is what I mean where we have to really stop and think about how far things have come. Like they're not perfect but. 
But yeah, well, thank God that that's not. Well, thank God that's not taking place in, in certain places. I was just going to say in the Western world. That's right, because that's not to say that the exact same thing doesn't still occur. They are still happening yeah. in places in this world right that's now. Right. Yeah, they are. They sure are. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Maybe, you know. <laughs> We're going to get to Marsha's life really soon. Okay. 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 Just as a, a final thing, because as I said, we are situated really in New York for this mm. episode. So some New York context. In New York City, a criminal statute allowed priests. Priests? <laughs> I feel like you didn't mean to say priests. <laughs> I didn't mean to say priests. No. <laughs> no. Police. Okay. Police. Yeah. The New York City police were allowed to arrest anyone wearing... Less than three gender-appropriate items of clothing. Wait, so does that mean you can wear, like, something really flamboyant, but as long as you're wearing, like, a watch and a, a tie and, and a top, top hat yeah. at the same time? You can wear a ball gown. <laughs> but have three <laughs> slacks and yeah. men's shoes yeah. and a hat. Surely that's still within those bounds, isn't I it? I would think so. So that's where we'll leave some historical context for now. And I think it is important, like I said... To keep that in mind, to remember how important the work that not just people like Marsha and Sylvia and Stormay did, but all of those activists who were involved post Stonewall. So now shall we talk about Marsha? Yes. <laughs> yes, we shall. So Marsha was born Malcolm Michaels Jr. in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1945. I'm nodding like I know where Elizabeth, New Jersey well, is. Well, it's actually not far. It's over the Hudson River. Oh, yeah. And the Hudson River played a very important role in Marsha's life. She grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and she remained a devout Christian her whole life. And this is important because she converted to Catholicism later, but I won't dwell on this mm. for now. So she wore dresses oh, from I'm a very... i to see where that goes though. Oh, yeah, okay. We will, yeah. Don't worry, we'll be yeah. getting there. Uh, she dressed in dresses from a very young age. Just from, from age five she started dressing oh, okay. yep. in dresses. However, the boys in the neighbourhood... Made things difficult. Yeah, I feel like this isn't going to go down well. A five-year-old wearing dresses, not in the sense of getting bashed, although that probably happened, but in the sense that they, in her words, would try and get fresh with her. And this did include being sexually assaulted by a 13-year-old boy when she was uh, was younger. Not when she was five. Not when she was five. Not that it makes it any better. No. No, but when she was young. Fuck. Yeah. And she describes this incident really candidly in the documentary Pay It No Mind, which I really recommend. You can watch it on YouTube. And she says that she didn't realise at the time that boys could even have sex with each other. Well, I mean, that's youth, but that's also a religious upbringing as well, I suppose. Yeah. But it's also youth. And I think general, yeah, general kind of ignorance yeah. perhaps. Her mother also, and again, I think this is really a, a product of the time we shouldn't label her mother as being particularly awful because of this comment however she did say that being homosexual was lower than being a dog Mm. well that yeah that's difficult as well isn't it because as you said like she would be her mother would be a product of her time as well yeah exactly yeah i think this is how we have to read this yeah it's a product of her time Mm. but she got out as soon as she could so in 1963 right after she finished school she packed up her bag and with just 15 dollars to her name she left for the glittering lights of New York oh, City. Who didn't? Hey, it's a thing to do. Well, actually, New York's that away. If you were a young queer person, New York was the place to mm. go. You know, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, you go to San Francisco. Yeah. On the East Coast, you go to New York. Specifically, you go to Greenwich Village. You do. 
Because this was the safe, safest place to be. Because yeah. there were already communities there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're finding your people there. Yeah. And this is exactly what she did. So she moved to Greenwich Village, the heart of the gay community in New York. But things weren't rosy. She started waiting tables to make a living. But I think That's she got... That's not rosy. Let me just say, waitressing. To all my waitressing friends out there, fuck that sucks. <laughs> That's irrelevant. My beef with waitressing is irrelevant. Oh, she didn't stay a waitress because she got kicked out. And she lived rough. She found herself homeless, a position that would follow her for much of her life off and on. And she started sex work to make ends meet, something else that would follow her for a great deal of time in her life. But she did find solace um, not just in Greenwich Village but specifically in Christopher Street. Here she met drag queens and she, I guess this probably tapped into – Something in her and she was like, oh, this is what I want yes. to do. Mm-hmm. Like I want to join the drag queens. Because I think another thing that we really have to keep in mind is that in the 1960s the concept of being trans in the way that we understand, mm. you know, transgender as an identity yes, right. and as. Well, because I suppose at this period in time, I mean, the language that gets used is transvestite, right? Yeah. But that suggests much more of an idea of cross-dressing, much more of an idea of presenting yourself as something that you aren't and wearing the clothes of someone else or something else. And we would not use that word today exactly um, to describe trans people. Because I think that the whole idea of being transgender has evolved beyond that idea of transvestite. Yep. But at the time in the the 1960s, it didn't exist. And the idea of transgender as that being who you are didn't exist in the same Mm. way as Mm. it does now. Having said that though, I think – Really, Marsha is gender non-conforming. Yeah. Which is really out there. And when she started performing drag, she really, like, made a name for herself yeah. very, very quickly. She but had... she identified as a she, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She went by female pronouns yes. she used. She legally changed her name to, to Marsha. Marsha. Yeah. Uh, Marsha Johnson. She was yeah. originally, when she first started doing drag, she went by the name Black Marsha. And then she changed it to Marsha P. Johnson and legally had it changed to Marsha Johnson. And the P if you don't know, stands for pay it no mind, which is what she would say to people when they asked her about her gender identity. Oh, well, there you go. Well, we shouldn't have the conversation about it because she'd just be like, pay it no mind. Pay it no mind. That's exactly what she would say. Uh, she actually said that to a judge once <laughs> who was so amused by it that he let her off. <laughs> that's good. I like it. Oh, that's funny. Probably like not just amused but also so befuddled. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like, that's funny. I don't know what to do with that. Um, I'm just going to let you off. Yeah. She said that she never really took drag seriously, like quote unquote seriously, but this is because she didn't have the money to take drag seriously. She, oh, that, yeah, that's fucking expensive. Oh my Ridiculously God. expensive. Yes. Like she was a drag queen of the streets. Like she found mm. what she could and she made the best of what she could. She was apparently an amazing thrift shopper. Oh, yeah. That's, um, she's a woman after my own heart. She knew exactly what to look out for. She knew how to build an outfit that she wanted on the cheap. Um, she altered what she found and made use of whatever she could find that was available. And she would walk around decked in flowers. Like she wore like flower crowns, these huge mm. arrangements on her head. Yeah, because whenever you look at pictures of her, obviously, when doing this episode, Googled lots of pictures, always like a huge headdress yeah. of flowers. Yeah. She'd also sometimes put like fairy lights in her flower crowns and she'd be given the flowers from vendors at the flower district where she'd often would sleep under the table so she actually kind of developed these relationships with the flower vendors and they would give her their leftovers at the end of the day which is nice very ahead of the times everyone wearing their flower crowns to their weddings and their bridesmaids parties now 
I know. Hey, they've recently. Marsha was ahead of you on that. By 50 years. (laughs) 55 years she was ahead of everybody with this. Later in her life she lived with Randy Wicker, her friend, who was another very important figure in kind of the post-Stonewall activism. And he said of her that she'd spend all of her money on flowers. And sometimes, and let's remember that this is somebody who is living in poverty, Mm. she would spend literally all of her money. Like she had $10, she spent $10 Mm. on flowers. Because she's living on the streets at this time, right? Yeah, off and on. Yeah. Yeah, and... She said, though, that they were an investment, that the flowers are going to make her a lot of money. Mm. And she was famous for wearing flowing robes, red plastic high heels, bright wigs. She started performing as a member of the group The Hot Peaches. It's a very evocative name. Yeah, Hot Peaches. Hot Peaches. Hot Peaches. I just keep saying it in that voice over and over again. Hot Hot peaches. Hot peaches. (laughs) All right, stop it. It's getting weird. They were like a drag performance troupe active from 1972 through to the 1990s. So I've skipped ahead in time a little bit post Stonewall, but we're going to come back Mm -hmm, because I'm just mm -hmm. talking about her drag career generally here. She also later performed with the uh, Coquettes. Oh, yeah. Saw that coming. That's good. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. They were a drag troupe from San Francisco and they formed a group on the East Coast. I love a good pun. Just love a good pun. There's so many amazing puns in drag names. Well, that I think that is just that's entirely drag. It's just all about puns, yeah. right? Because it's so coquettes. It's, so <laughs> it's camp, isn't it? Yeah, it's so you camp. know. So she became one of the first drag queens to perform at Stonewall, which is important to note was not always very welcoming of drag queens. Mm. All right, so here we go. We keep saying Stonewall, right? But like, let's set up what Stonewall. Yeah. Was okay. So the the Stonewall was a total dive bar mm. in Greenwich Village, which was run by the mafia. Oh, of course it was yeah. the Genovese family. And this is because the New York State Liquor Authorities penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to LGBTQ people. Right? Yeah, they weren't even allowed to sell them alcohol. What? And. Queer people were not allowed to dance publicly together. So if you were dancing with another oh person of the same God. sex, you could be arrested. It was all under yeah, the... P- how the fuck do you police that? All right, sorry, my mind. Well, just- we'll get to that, yeah, right. actually. Mm. So this was all under the pretense that it was considered disorderly. Oh, right. Okay, sure. Now, this law was overturned in 1966, but the police continued to harass gay establishments because of this whole, like, public affection mm. being... Illegal between same-sex yeah. couples. And were there still the laws around how many items of gender-appropriate clothing you could wear? Yes. Yeah. So there's still plenty of laws that are hedging yes, you in. They can. Yeah. And because of the fact that these restrictions on serving alcohol to gay and lesbian people, the mafia were like, well, the, here is a market that is not being catered it's to. It's an untapped market. A totally untapped market and we can make some money. We can exploit those people. Yeah. Because it's already illegal. And so they're like, well, if we have an illegal establishment serving illegal alcohol to illegal customers, mm. it, like, you know. What does it matter? What does it matter? Yeah. Let's just fucking do it. And they're the mafia. So who's yeah. really going to stop them? 
And they had a bunch of bars in Greenwich Village, one of which, of course, was the Stonewall Inn. And they paid off the police, really. And, and I mean, that's really the only way you could yeah. sustain a place for longer than a night is to pay off the police, right? And it doesn't mean that they weren't raided, though. Yeah. They were raided, but because they'd been paid off, they'd usually get a tip that a raid mm. is coming. Mm-hmm. But it also meant that because they were operating illegally, they were also very unsafe because they didn't have to live up to any like requirements mm, of OHS yeah. no OHS safety standards here so that meant that they didn't have like proper running water quite a lot of the time like behind the bar in the cl- in the toilets they had awful disgusting toilets apparently no fire exits um <laughs> oh my anxiety would get the best of me I'd be like we're leaving yeah. <laughs> we're leaving they would also water down the drinks as much as they could get away with. Oh, yeah. This was a really common complaint among people who were interviewed in the documentary, Pay No Mind. <laughs> More so than the, the lack of fire yeah, exits. The watering down of the drinks was like really top concern. Yeah, right. So another thing, because they were run by the mafia, is that they would have all of these like secrets right? So because they knew that the police were going to raid them, they would have like hidden doors where they would store extra alcohol and extra money because if the police raided them, they would take all of the bootleg alcohol, the illegal alcohol, they would take all of the money. And so they had like little secret compartments where they could hide and false doors and stuff so that they could hide alcohol. Then as soon as the police were gone after their raid, they'd just like flip the door back in business. I love a good secret door. Yeah. The Stonewall Inn also had really strict door policing rules. So the bouncers would only let you in if you looked a certain way and if they knew who you were. So basically you had to look like a queer person for them to let you in. But it also meant only a certain amount of drag queens were allowed in at a time. And I should also mention that for a long time the Stonewall Inn only allowed gay men. So that meant no lesbians and no drag queens Uh or trans people. Yeah. So just gay men. But they it had lifted this policy by mm. the late 1960s where we're talking about. And people came, of course, because there was nowhere else to go. So they put up with really shitty conditions simply because mm-hmm. there was nothing else. Well, there were other – wasn't nothing else. There were a few other bars, weren't there? Well, bars that were also operating illegally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but yeah. some slightly higher standard bars, yes. Yeah. So let's bring ourselves to the morning of June 28th. It's early in the morning. I'll paint a picture. Yeah. So it's a hot summer night, I imagine. I don't actually know for sure if it was hot, but I'm imagining it because it's June, June 28. Yeah. Now, I did say that normally the police would tip them off when there's going to be a raid. Yes. However, on this morning they did not. No, so the raid came as a surprise, which meant that they hadn't hidden their alcohol and their money away in any of those secret compartments. The police entered the club at around 1.30 in the morning. They found all that bootlegged alcohol, some cash, and they began harassing patrons. Now this harassment, and this is not unusual, this is not exclusive to this one particular raid, but this harassment included having a female officer take gender non-conforming patrons into the bathroom to check their gender. Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah. Can you imagine the humiliation of that? Like having somebody pull you into the bathroom to check what's in your pants? Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot still. That's not a, I feel like that's not something that stopped. (gasps) 
I mean, if we think about all of the controversy around trans people and bathroom rights, yeah, for fuck's sake, right. like, mm. why the fuck are people so concerned about what's in people's pants? Other people's pants. Yeah. Other people's pants. Not people's your own pants. Pa- worry about what's in your own Just pants. Think about your own pants. Don't people. worry about what's in anyone else's pants. Unless that person is consensually wants you to worry about what's in their pants because they want to share what's in their pants with you and you want to have what's in their pants shared with you. And then that- you can all worry about each other's pants. Otherwise, complete strangers, just leave their pants alone. Or skirts. Yeah, which dresses, <laughs> whatever. Kill happens to be. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Pay it no mind. Pay it no mind. Some people are really obsessed with that, hey? They're fucking obsessed. Yeah. Oy. Which I think says a lot more about them than it does about anyone else. That's right. You sounded like such a mother then. <laughs> that is the advice you are going to give your child when they come home crying because yeah. someone's bullied them. You're going to be like, that says a lot more about them than it does about you, honey. <laughs> So good job, Lauren. I like it. Anyway, so they arrested 13 people, many of whom were arrested under the gender appropriate clothing statute. Do they normally arrest people? Yes. When they do raids? Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, if they mm-hmm. yeah, if they had to. Yeah. yeah. But again, like normally they would be tipped off, which yeah. meant that they would Most stop people dancing, get out. Yeah. they'd get out, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, however, this time normally after a raid, everybody would sort of disperse and go home, like, uh, fun's over for tonight. Mm. This night however they didn't they didn't disperse they stayed at the bar outside waiting and there's a lot of first person accounts that you can listen to that you can find on youtube there's some an excellent podcast called making gay history with eric marcus that i very highly recommend because he has gone through decades old tapes of interviews with some of these original lgbtqi activists and to hear them describe this night in their own words mm. is something that I highly recommend. So please go back, like go and find it because it's definitely out there. Mm. But many people say that they don't really know that there was any one particular thing. Yeah, there's so this many night. different stories, aren't there? Yeah. Like, lots of different versions. And like why they hung around this particular night and didn't just go home. Um, Sylvia Rivera in one of those interviews with Eric Marcus says they were just kind of sick of it they were sick of being treated Mm. this way and it had just sort of reached that tipping point I think so yes as you said there are a couple of different versions of what happened at this point and this is where the story really silly ideas around Judy Garland as well aren't there yeah because it was also the evening of Judy Garland's funeral yeah and of course she was a gay icon hugely kind of influential not just in the gay movement then but particularly in the 50s and stuff where you had to be a little bit more underhanded. Like the code, are you a friend of Judy's, was used Mm, mm. to kind of figure out if somebody else was was gay. But Um, it seems so reductive though to just be like, oh, everyone's pretty upset about Judy Garland. Well, this is it. People who were there will dispute. Like, yeah, okay, it happened. Yeah, definitely. And she meant a lot. She was important in the community. But it it didn't send everybody off into a That's right. Stonewall did not happen because Judy Garland died. Yeah, there's so many interesting (laughs) – but there are so many weird theories, right? I just think that's one of the – that's one of the weirdest theories. Yeah, yeah. Which – I think it's a fun story, <laughs> but no, they were pissed off because of the continual harassment yeah. and discrimination that they faced. Yeah. And one version of the story, which is probably the most accurate, is the police officer removed the drag king, Stormade Delavery, forcing her into the back of a paddy wagon. And she yelled at the crowd to act. Mm. She's like, 
fucking do something, guys. Like, yeah. w- are you just gonna you're Stand just gonna around. let this happen? Yeah. And it's said that she threw the first punch. I don't know that it was necessarily like a physical punch. That's up in the air. It's one of these un you know unknown stories. But many people do say that she is the one who incited the riot with this call to action. Now, according to one story, it was Marsha who incited the riot. However, this one is probably not true, mostly because, as I said, the raid occurred at 1.30 in the morning and Marsha, in her own words, says that she didn't actually arrive at the Stonewall until 2 o'clock in the morning, so half an hour later. However, according to this version of the story, Marsha declared, I got my civil rights and threw a shot glass into a mirror, which allegedly started the riots, and it became known as the shot glass that was heard around the world. It's quite a powerful phrase. Quite often, though, with these kinds of stories, the legend becomes not more important or more powerful, but it becomes the story that circulates, right? Yeah. That's it. It's the legend that builds up around it. Yeah. But then, of course, that means that unpicking the facts from the legend becomes so much harder to do because yeah. that's the story that perpetuates itself. Exactly. But as you said, she said in her own words that she wasn't even there. She wasn't there just yet. She was there though. Like she did arrive. She she came. came. And once she was there, she was very involved. So the police were called, obviously. The fire brigade were called. The riot squad was called. They barricaded themselves in and people started throwing rocks and pennies and bottles. And apparently the pennies were actually quite symbolic of, like, paying off the police. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Whatever they could get their hands on, they started throwing, basically. And there's a story that Marsha climbed up a lamp post and dropped a brick from her bag onto, like, smashing the window of a police car. <laughs> um, we don't know if it was a brick, but she threw something yeah. out of her handbag onto a police car. That I think there are a few witnesses for, so Mm. I think that that did happen. Another thing that happened is that there were rocket-style kick lines that formed on the street, and so it wasn't even just like a – it wasn't – It wasn't just your standard barricade. It was a barricade of drag queens and other, like, you know, gay men and lesbians. lesbians, Rocket-style kicking – can-can dancing along the street, which I think is amazing. (laughs) The protest continued for six nights and each night more and more people were coming out. Often they came with like leaflets and flyers Mm -hmm. and handed them out to the crowd as well. And so that, in a nutshell, is Stonewall. And if you really want to know the in-depth history of Stonewall, um, you should read Stonewall, The Riots That Sparked the Gay Revolution by David Carter. It's a really in-depth historical account of the riots in Mm. general. And obviously I could not do them entirely justice in this little episode. But that is to say Marsha was there and she was a leading figure Mm. in the riots and more importantly really she was a leading figure in the activism that occurred post-Stonewall. And this is where we see her really like come into her role as an activist, as a trans activist. And not just that, but also an activist for street kids, for sex workers, for queer people of colour. Together with Sylvia Rivera, they made a lot of strides. So let's get into that. So she was already a bit of a character, like somebody that people knew even before Stonewall happened. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. She was really 
popular yeah. in Greenwich yeah. Village. People knew her. They loved her. She was really famous for being very smiley and very joyful and very generous. And her friend, Randy Wicker, who I mentioned before, he says that many called her Saint Marsha. Oh. And it's this kindness that actually led to her lifelong friendship with her fellow trans activist, Sylvia Rivera. And I want to tell you a little bit about Sylvia's story as well. It parallels Marsha's in so many ways, particularly from this point on, much of the activist work that they did, mm. they did together. Mm-hmm. So Sylvia met Marsha when she was just 12 years old and Marsha became a mother to her in Sylvia's words. Sylvia was living on the streets. She was working as a child prostitute. At 12. At 12. Yeah, actually. So she had a really difficult upbringing. Her father abandoned the family just after she was born. Her mother died when she was just three. She was raised by her grandmother. And she would, you know, like Marsha, she kind of knew that she was different from a very young age. She would dress in her grandmother's clothes, wear her grandmother's makeup. And when her grandmother caught her, she would, quote, give her a whipping, Mm. which I think, again, is kind of standard at the time. And I don't want to make her grandmother out to seem like this awful, again, awful, abusive, you know, transphobic, homophobic woman. It wasn't, I don't think, that malicious. Her grandmother was really worried about her. And I think she was really worried about her because the community started to talk about her. So her grandmother was Venezuelan and mm. she came home one day apparently. And again, you can hear Sylvia recount this story in Eric Marcus's Making Gay History. Her grandmother came home one day and was really upset. And she said that people had been calling Sylvia a F word. I'm not going to say the word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she was so upset. Sylvia didn't, she respected her grandmother so much. She didn't want to make life difficult for her. So she chose to leave. So in 1961, yeah. she was 10 years old. She ran away. And this is when she started working as a sex worker. Mm. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Again, listen to Sylvia tell her own story yeah. in Making Gay History, the podcast. When she was a child, her grandmother had to bail her out of jail again and again. And this is after she'd left home. And Sylvia says she doesn't even know how many times this happened Mm. because young gay men were particularly targeted and, and arrested for what they were doing. And this, though, I think gave her the drive to fight for the rights of the most vulnerable of Mm. the LGBTQ community, particularly trans sex workers, street kids and queer folk of colour. So that is a huge part of her activism. And she met Marsha in 1963 and this was like a totally transformational encounter. She describes, as I said, Marsha was the mother that she never had and Mm -hmm. she gave her that love and acceptance and the stability of a family and the two were so close for the rest of their lives. So obviously, right, so they they already knew each other obviously before Mm. Stonewall happened. They were already inseparable by this point. So obviously it's going to make sense then that they go on to do their work together. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so Marsha was a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front, which was an organisation that rose in the aftermath of Stonewall. And they were a really kind of counterculture activist group. They were like hardcore lefties. They believed that it was necessary to dismantle social institutions, particularly the nuclear family. Oh, they were communists. (laughs) Turns out out they were communists. (laughs) All right. And they basically, yeah, they wanted to redefine sexual roles, redefine gender, redefine a whole bunch of stuff. They were just really anti-establishment. But together with Sylvia, she founded STAR. Well, 
Sylvia really founded Star and asked Marsha to come on as vice president. Uh, so Star stands for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, which today is called Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. And so this Star. I thought you were sorry. saying, I'm sorry, maybe this is an inappropriate joke. I thought you were saying sweet transvestite. Do you know how many times I read sweet transvestite <laughs> and in my head I read it as sweet transvestite? I can't. I, do you know how many times it's, I've seen Rocky Horror? I know. It's very hard not it's to. It's probably the film I've seen most times in my life. Do you really? Yeah. I've seen it so many times. And it's definitely the film I've seen at the cinema the most times. So Because I go to like so many midnight screenings Well, there of are Rocky a Horror. lot of midnight screenings yeah. of Rocky Horror. Yeah. So. Anyway, I'm so, I so can't not... help myself but read sweet transvestite. It's yeah, It's true. Straight- Street transgender. Yes. Yeah. And then and now street transgender action revolution. Somebody should change Rocky Horror to be street <laughs> transgender <laughs> action revolutionary from Christopher Street, <laughs> New York. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Actually, don't change it. Just leave Rocky Horror how it is. Yeah. So Star began after a sit-in at Weinstein Hall. Look, sorry about the name. <laughs> Awkward. Uh, <laughs> New York University. And also sit-ins were such a like they were all the rage in the late 60s, early 70s, weren't when they? We should bring sit-ins back. When was the last time we had a good sit-in? Oh, my God. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, let's bring back sit-ins. Something to keep in mind. They worked and this one worked. So basically the sit-in yes, was because school administrators had cancelled a dance because it was sponsored by a queer organisation. And so they were protesting this, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. And a few prominent groups, including the Gay Liberation Front and, get this, the Radical Lesbians... All one word, radical lesbians. Oh, that's good. They protested with the students and they were successful in overturning the ban. Hooray! Hooray! Party um, times. And on the last day of the five-day sit-in. Oh, see, shit. Why do we have sit-ins anymore? Yeah. Five days Because nobody has five days. I've got five days. Do you? Look, if you anyone... You were just talking about how busy you are. I am. Look, I am busy, but I'm never too busy for a sit-in. If anyone out there is interested in a sit-in, <laughs> I don't know what we're sitting in about, but just get in contact. All right. We'll find a cause. Yeah. i got lots of causes, man. I don't know if sitting in will be of help to any of us. <laughs> just bring your computer with you and do some work. Yes. I don't I think that defines, defines Sit the point. in and do some marking. <laughs> it's basically what I do anyway. It's basically, it's basically how I live my life. That's your life. Yeah. Anyway, after the five-day sit-in, Sylvia began to consider who was being left out, basically. Mm. So after the police forced everyone to disperse, it was the trans kids and the street kids who were the last to leave. And they kind of all gathered on the steps. And she came to realise that the needs of young LGBTQ youth, particularly trans youth of colour and street youth, were not being met by existing queer activism groups. There wasn't anything for trans folk. And transvestites and I say that in quote unquote that's the language of the day not the language of today and drag queens were seen as being kind of the bottom of the pile in terms of Mm. this community they were undesirable really because they were seen as giving them a bad name Mm. many of the people who belonged in these other activist groups were white middle class and a lot of them just wanted to pass in society they just wanted to get on with their lives not be seen to be making a fuss not be seen to be disruptive, not be seen to be, any shall we say, deviant yeah. in any way. See this, I don't know if this is an appropriate segue or not, but, I mean, this makes me think of groups like the Mattachine, isn't it, who were, yes, that's who were right. around at the same time, mm. who were working pretty much who didn't like what was going on around Stonewall because yeah. the Mattachine were a 
white middle class male organization that was trying to promote yep. gay rights. Exactly. But in that kind of way where it was look, we're not weirdos, we're not different, yeah. we're just like you. Yeah. And it was kind of that sense of trying to, I guess, quote, unquote, be normal and yeah. quote, unquote, not, yeah, not be troublesome. Exactly. Whereas obviously the work that was coming out of Stonewall was troublesome. That's it right. It was disruptive. And this includes like the Gay Liberation Front and the Radical Lesbians. Like they are also pushing the boundaries. Yeah. I'm not putting them in the same category as being wanting to pass and not making mm. a fuss because these groups did want to make a fuss. Yeah, and that's exactly what groups like Mattachine didn't yeah. want them to do. They yeah. were like, shut up, you're ruining it. You're ruining it. Exactly. Because you're being too loud and you're being too flamboyant and being too over the top. Yeah. This comes back to something we were talking about in the last episode as well, that idea that I guess for a certain percentage of society, it's that idea of, look, we're making – a space for ourselves and we're going to get it right for us and then we'll come back and pick mm. you up later. Like mm. that's very much mm-hmm. that conversation we had in the last episode. Yep. And I guess, yeah, and I suppose that's exactly what Marsha was fighting against, that idea of... So, and Sylvia specifically. And Sylvia actually. specifically was was fighting mm. against, right, was that idea of trying to fit into a particular conservative idea and actually fitting yourself into a box. And even though these other radical groups did exist, they still were not inclusive of those trans folk and straight Mm. kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or people of colour. Yeah, exactly. Yes, totally. And this is what they committed themselves to. So Sylvia, you know, started Star. She asked Johnson to come along and help her out. And together they took matters into their own hands and they opened the first Star house, which was actually a trailer that they parked in a Greenwich Village car park. And it was a place where LGBTQ youth could come together, where trans sex workers often came to sleep. And also just to socialise and support one another. So it did offer that, you know, safe space to sleep Mm. in, food, etc. But really it was about creating a community. However, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, it wasn't long before the trailer was towed Mm. with 20 people still sleeping inside. (laughs) Um, So they knew they had to find a more permanent solution. So they opened instead. I wonder how far they towed it before they... (laughs) Yeah. That there was... Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. So they opened at 213 Second Avenue. They raised funds by holding a dance together with the Gay Liberation Front. See, they are allies. And they were able to expand their services into education and they offered things like um, literacy support during the day. However, money was really, really tight. So Marsha and Sylvia basically supported the organisation through their sex work. What? So in the evening they were out making the money Mm. for the organisation and during the day they were working in the organisation providing that support. So they were deeply committed. Like this is a labour of love. Yeah. The good news is that Star later expanded into other cities in the US. However, it did collapse in the mid-70s, but it has been revived. As I said, it was revived as the street transgender action revolutionaries and um, Sylvia was also involved in revising it as the street transgender action revolutionaries. It was the first LGBTQ shelter in North America, the first organization led by trans women of color Mm. and the first trans sex worker labor organization. Wow. So they achieved a lot with Star, even though it was quite a small organization, like it was very grassroots, very small, big achievements though. But that's the thing though. How many of these organizations are grassroots? Like so many of them. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's how they have to start. Exactly. 
Because it's not like, oh, what, you're going to apply for federal funding to open? Yeah. Like in 1970? No, of course not. You have to pour your life and soul into yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And so they continue their activism as well. So they were also involved in getting some of the first pride parades started. So there was the parade in 1970 and by 19- and So the 1970, that parade was like commemorating yeah. Stonewall? Yeah, right. The first yes. Pride Parade was on the anniversary of Stonewall, Stonewall, and it wasn't just in New York. There were Pride parades in other cities across the U.S. And by 1973, it had grown a bit bigger. But the New York Pride committees banned drag queens from participating in the parades, as as we said, they <laughs> believe they gave them a bad name. Sorry, I mean lol only because like you go to a Pride, yeah, you go Can to you a, pride imagine parade a Pride Parade without, without a drag, drag queen? queen. Who's Come going on. to that? No one's going to that. <laughs> No one is going to that. <laughs> yeah, but they thought they gave him a bad name because, again, they wanted to be taken really seriously. And so Marsha and Sylvia, well, guess what they said? Uh, I'm going to think they said something along the lines of like, fuck that. Yeah, fuck yeah, that. Fuck that. And they marched at the front for the entire parade. <laughs> now, Sylvia forced her way. So once the parade had ended, there was a stage at the end and Sylvia forced her way onto this stage and gave an incredibly powerful speech, which you can watch in its entirety on YouTube and you can also see it as a part of the film The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which is on Netflix. I highly recommend it. This speech will probably make you cry. It's incredibly powerful. She so the way I just went like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm getting used to that. We oh, yeah. are, yeah. She basically called out cis, white, middle-class gays and lesbians for ignoring the plight of drag queens, trans folk, street kids and minority LGBTQ folk. They felt that the gay rights movement had forgotten and left behind their trans brothers and sisters, and the crowd booed her as she spoke. Whoa. Now, again, we want to need to remember that what Sylvia and Marsha represented was this group that was marginalised within an already marginalised community, and we have talked about this. But Sylvia said that she never wanted to pass. She never wanted to be invisible Mm -hmm. and, like, pass as a woman in the world. She wanted to be herself. And that's who she was. She was Sylvia, mm. you know, in much the same way that Marsha was Marsha. Mm-hmm. And they weren't trying to be well, anything other than that. To be honest, in much the same way any of us wants to just be who we are. Exactly, without having like, to. How many of us yeah. want to be recognised first as a gender yes. and then secondly as the individual that we are? Yeah. I think that's a pretty basic human right, yeah. right, to be recognised first as an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. That's just my that's my two cents. That's my two cents. It seems like a, it's yeah. that to me seems like a fairly reasonable request. Yeah, that does. That's actually like kind of I don't know. I just had a moment when you said that, and I was just like, oh fuck, like <laughs> fuck, oh, fucking of course. It's pretty reasonable. It's pretty reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that comes back to why I really wanted to focus on these stories mm. for this episode mm-hmm. because. Trans folk is still not seen as so often, not all the time, I hope, but so often mm, are oh, not seen as being individuals. This is definitely still an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course it is. All of these issues are still issues. And are still a minority in a minority community. Mm. But I want to draw your attention to something that happened just after this in 1975 on a much, much lighter note. Mm-hmm. Much lighter note. Good. I like a lighter note. Let's go there. And this is because Marsha caught the eye of a gentleman artist. Oh, yeah. I know the gentleman artist that you're talking about, don't I? By the name of? 
I'm going to assume you mean Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. And he photographed her for a series called Ladies and Gentlemen, which documented those who subverted gender binaries. Warhol took Polaroids and then he created portraits. He silkscreened the photos onto canvas and he painted swashes of colour in his very Warholian particular style is that the word i don't know more yeah so she is that in your warholian yeah and smoke it you should have a look at the images that he created not just of Marsha, but of everybody that he did like they're really again fun fabulous and i really like that he was celebrating gender non-conforming people in 1975 Mm. which feels really progressive at that time so there was a lot of really fun and fabulous things that happened in Marsha's life she had an excellent drag career she was beloved she was a very happy generous person she was helping to change people's lives yes working with Sylvia on incredibly important projects however there was a lot of darkness in her life at the same time Mm. so part of that is that she was very often arrested she said that she stopped counting after the 100th time that she was arrested she was also once shot by a client and apparently this was one of eight attempts that were made on her life by clients oh my god yeah yeah that's right and can we just say on that right that's exactly why it's so important to decriminalise sex work Absolutely. in the first place the, so that that sort of shit isn't what happens. So that you can actually work in a safe and regulated environment. And not get shot at. Yeah. And actually on that, can we just say that South Australia has yes. just passed legislation to decriminalise sex work, passed the upper the house. house, it's got to go through the lower house still, but we're one step closer and that's really exciting and there's a lot to celebrate and I also just want to give a shout out to my sister-in-law, Georgia, who works for SIN, which is the Sex Industry Network, and they've been doing some really amazing activist work in getting this legislation passed. That is excellent, but also do you reckon that that acronym will like – <laughs> do you think they came up with Do you think they came up with the or? acronym first or with the I'll ask it. <laughs> do you know what I'll I mean? I'll ask. <laughs> do you think they said let's just call ourselves sin and then we'll make it fit? Yeah. Or was it pure coincidence? It, look, you know what? It's not the important thing. <laughs> but anyway, so there's hopefully going to be something to celebrate here in Adelaide. Yeah, soon. maybe. Who knows? By the next episode, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe maybe not by the next Probably episode. Probably not by then. No. But sometime soon. Yay. But yes, that's why it's important to decriminalise sex work so mm-hmm. that we can look after sex workers yeah. because sex work is work. Yeah. So the other kind of darkness that was present in Marsha's life is that she struggled with her mental health for a lot of her life and she was in and out of institutions and on and off medication quite a lot. She says that her breakdown started in 1970 and she had about eight of them in total yeah. and she would be drugged with Thorazine. I don't know Which, if that's a good thing or a bad. I'm going to assume that's a bad thing. So, yeah, it's an antipsychotic medication and apparently she would come out of these institutions and be taking her prescriptions and she'd be kind of a zombie for mm. like a month and then she'd stop taking it and kind of become herself again. She also had a darker side to her personality that she called Malcolm, which mm. is her, I mean, her name at birth. Birth name. Yeah. And apparently Malcolm could be quite angry and violent and not very nice, which is completely in contrast to Marsha, who was by all accounts incredibly kind and generous and loving and open. And 
a lot of this seems to be attached to a lot of kind of religious and spiritual oh, ideas that's as right. well. Yeah, because you were saying she did remain devoutly. Yeah. Or she converted to Catholicism. She converted to Catholicism yeah. and was a Christian yeah. throughout her life. And a lot of the things that she said kind of have this religious bent and this kind of spiritual edge to them, which I don't know, I guess for some people, maybe that seems like psychosis, whereas maybe for her it's devotion. Mm. So, for example, David Carter, the author of Stonewall, quotes her as saying, sometimes I have visions. In one of them, there are 10 suns shining in the sky, gorgeous and freaked out like the end of the world. I love my saints, darling, but sometimes the visions can be scary. (laughs) I was going to say that's a very saint thing. It That's is a very saint thing and to she's do. she's Saint Marsha. On that as well, she, according to another friend of hers, Bob Kohler, she used to make offerings to her father, Neptune, would strip off her clothes and she would take the clothes of her friends and throw them in the Hudson River. So <laughs> they would be with like... With consent or without consent? I think with playful consent. Yeah, right. Yeah, like mucking around. Don't throw my clothes in the river, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so they used to go sunbathing at the piers so they would be undressed right? They would go sunbathing and she wanted to make appeasements to help her friends on the other side. And so she'd offer up clothing and flowers to the river. I should say another part of her activism that came later in her life was that she became an AIDS activist. So when she was living with Randy, she cared for his partner, David Combs, who died of AIDS in 1990. And after that, she became very involved in AIDS activism and she would often be seen at a Catholic church kneeling before the Virgin Mary and praying Mm. for David. So her religion remained quite an important part of her life, Mm. um, particularly, I think, in those later years. On July 6, 1992, her body was found floating in the Hudson River. Now, this was initially ruled as a suicide But this didn't sit right with those who knew Marsha. She was so vivacious, she was so full of life, and she was also someone who was often the victim of violent transphobic attacks. Mm -hmm. And so many believed that she was murdered. She'd also had been seen trying to escape from some men who were known to harass queer people and trans women and drag queens. And so this suicide just did not sit well with anyone. It was later revised to an accidental drowning, but that was still really not, yeah, like not really what cool. Does that say? And so people took to the streets and they, they marched and they protested and they demanded that the police investigate properly mm. because it d- did feel like something that was sort of swept under the rug a little bit, which that's, <laughs> that's a whole thing, right? With trans women, particularly trans women of color, the murder rates, firstly, are so extremely high, so incredibly disproportionately high. Mm. And the sentencing that occurs for the perpetrators mm. of the murders of trans women of colour are abhorrently... Disproportionately short. Yeah, that's right. And if you watch the Netflix documentary, which follows trans activist Victoria Cruz from the Anti-Violence Project in New York as she investigates Marsha's death, she also tells the story of some of these cases and draws attention to the injustice that occurs in the wake of the deaths of trans women of colour, to the bureaucratic difficulties that face those who are trying to advocate and get justice for Mm. trans women and... That's that's really, I think, where if we're allies, like we need to be putting our money where our mouths are, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is an area where 
there is still so much injustice. And I feel, I mean, yeah, I think this is something that I've only really been kind of, I guess, thinking about a lot more recently and in the ways that I feel like I'm so outside of this and have been quite ignorant perhaps. And I, I really want to engage more and, and learn more and understand more and perhaps do more if we, you know, whatever we can to do more because it's the area where we fucking fall short. Mm. Like we fall short here and it's not okay. And Marsha is an example of that. And they did reopen her case in mm. 2012 though. So it took years for her case to be reopened. 2012. And what's been found out since then? Not really anything. Holy fuck. No. So they haven't really been very, you know, nothing has particularly has been found. They've investigated some of those leads in terms of those men who people claim had been following Mm. her earlier in the day. Victoria Cruz has, you know, been talking to the people who saw her last and trying to track her last movements. And I think the general consensus seems to be that it probably wasn't a direct murder. Mm. Mm -hmm. It may have been a drowning caused by her fleeing people, which still technically is murder. Yeah, it's Um, more than just an accidental drowning. Yeah, it's more than accidental drowning. But because there's no – the autopsy reports show that there are not physical signs on her – like she died in the water. She died basically. Yeah, she drowned. She drowned. Yeah, Yeah, there wasn't any other physical signs that she had been assaulted or anything prior to her But it's how she got in that water. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We don't know – how she got in the water and Sylvia is adamant that she never would have committed suicide because they basically they had a pact to quote go to the River Jordan together oh really yeah and the River Jordan was the Hudson and so they if it came to that they were going to do it together together and so Sylvia's like no she would not have done that without me and I think also probably without even telling her and I mean if it had been suicide like she didn't leave anything behind so it's quite not that dying is particularly poetic, although we like to romanticize it a lot. But it is, um, you know, talking as you were before about the way that she would throw offerings into the river. Mm-hmm. It is actually quite a poetic mm-hmm. way to go in the river itself. Well, this isn't is what it? I meant at the top of the show when they said the Hudson actually played quite an important role in her mm-hmm. life. They lived near the Hudson. Sylvia Rivera moved to an abandoned pier. She lived in basically a shack, a shanty in an abandoned pier on the Hudson very close to where Marsha was found and she struggled quite a lot in the years following Marsha's death and it took her a while to get back on her feet again and Sylvia herself died much too young, I think at just 52. And what, So what year was that? She passed in 2002 of liver failure. So, But she did become involved again in things like the street transgender action revolutionaries later in life. But, yeah, she kind of never really recovered from Marsha's death. Mm. It was quite devastating to her. Mm. But if we're going to bring it up into a lighter note to end the show. Do you have a lighter note to end the show? I, I do have a lighter don't note. Don't know where we go after that. And this is that it was announced in May 30 that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are getting statues in Greenwich Village just a block away from Stonewall, and they will be the first transgender folk to have statues in the entire United States. That's 
Awesome. Yes, it is. That's fantastic. Um, And she has quite a powerful legacy. The New York Times recently included her in their overlooked obituaries, which looks at the lives of those who were left out of Mm. historical obits. Well, I was going to say, it seems like, you know, you've mentioned that there's a recent documentary on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, how recent is that documentary? The documentary is quite recent. Yeah. It's a couple of years old. So it it seems like, again, this revisionist yeah. history project that's happening at the moment like yeah. again it seems like she is another one of these figures that we are pulling back into the present out of the past digging up those stories finally paying mm. honor to these people much too late yeah 50 years later still the fact that there is some kind of actual recognition yeah and statues that's cool i mean yeah. that i quite like that yeah i mean think about how many statues of white men there oh, are fuck yeah Right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like a lot. to get two trans women of colour? Yeah. Like, wow. Hopefully the first of many more to come, I'm sure. And one more, and that is that the Marsha P. Johnson Institute continues to protect and defend the rights of black transgender people. Uh, they were founded as a response to the murders of black trans women and women of colour. And the connection that that has to exclusion from social justice issues, mm. so race, gender reproductive rights and gun violence. Mm. So they are still continuing this work today. Yeah. And I think she is a symbol of, you know, that kind of activism that's so important and so necessary, Mm. as we've kind of said quite a few times this episode. And I think, you know, obviously in this month of pride, looking back at the strides that have been made, but also looking forward at the strides that are still still to be made. Still to be made. Yeah. Exactly. And that is why I chose Marsha this well, week. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. I thoroughly, well, I don't know if enjoyed the word. <laughs> I don't know if enjoyed the, is the word, but I feel thoroughly enlightened. Good. Let's say that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, so happy Pride, everybody. And, of course, this uh, episode will be coming out at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So we hope you enjoy the last few days of Pride Month. Especially June 28th. <sighs> like, Let's yeah. have a party. Of course, there's a, a million. Let's have a million parties. Let's have a sit-in. No, I want to have a sit-in. Oh, we can have a sit-in party. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Great. Yay! Yay. Sit-in. This has been a, a long episode, so we better wrap it up. It, it was, has. We've had a few long slash difficult yeah. episodes because there's look there's it, there's been some timely issues they that have. we felt very strongly about we that we really needed w- to talk about. We we did, but I think you know we are going to make a, a concerted <laughs> effort. To bring back some, some lightness, some lightness, some lols. Yeah. Look, we'll find you someone ridiculous yeah. next time around. I, I swear. Ridic- yeah. Maybe ridiculous isn't the word that I want to use, but we'll find some lightness for the next yeah. episode. That'd be that would be good. Let's Promise. have an episode where we don't cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except if we cry, laugh. Yeah. Like we're laughing so hard yeah. we cry. All right. Yeah. Good. Cool. Excellent. Good. All right. So until next time, thank you so much for joining us again. Happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride. And, of course, if you would like to catch up on all of our past episodes, you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, your podcasting app of choice. So leave a review and subscribe. Yes, please. And tell your friends. And if you love the podcast and you want to support us, you can join our Patreon for as little as $2 a month. That's nothing. It's that's not even a cup of coffee. It's That's half not. a cup of coffee oh for behind the scenes exclusive content, including mini episodes, blooper reels, some animation that Alicia made. Bye. 
like the way you said that. So I do want to take credit for that. Yeah, that's all right. Pretend. And of course, if you would like to support us in other ways by uh, wearing some bling, some deviant women bling, you can buy yourself a t-shirt or a pin on our Etsy store. And so, as always, a very big thank you to Brendan Davies for the sound and to India Hui who composed our music. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.